0: Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, blink of an eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything.
1: Season 2, Episode 12, Mounting Pressure. Hello, everyone. I hope you are well. I send you love this day. I want to give a shout out to Michaela Naughton from Philadelphia, who just graduated from graduate school as an oncology therapist. I met her at the Chalfont Hotel restaurant in Cape May. She told me she is listening to Blink of an Eye. Michaela, thank you for wanting to tell all your patients about Blink of an Eye. I'm so proud of you for the healing impact you are having on people who are scared and potentially facing early cancer-related death. You know, we are all in this work of healing together. I hope you feel that way and see yourself as a healer. You are a healer. And yes, your stories and life experiences impact me too. I read every email I receive from listeners. Please keep writing me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. Gosh, there always seems to be so much happening in each of our corners of the world, you know? Well, that is what I hope Blink of an Eye supports you through. We cannot escape trauma or the impacts of trauma in our lives and the impacts of other people's trauma. It is good that we become familiar and conversant in many aspects of trauma. Today, I want to talk about the pressure we can feel in a crisis. You know what I'm talking about. Pressure that can come from external forces of all kinds and pressure that can come from within about something troubling you. And sometimes it is both. Well, where we are in the blink of an eye story, it was a long weekend. I'm filling you in on more of what happened in the couple of days I did not write any family and friends updates for Paula to post. So bear with me, as it's not all chronological. There was just so much going on. I've been piecing it together from notes I've found and text messages between family and friends, as well as what I found written in the medical journal I was keeping. I had decided in the first couple of days of our being in the ICU at Atlantic Care to keep a medical journal and to keep it out in the open, available for any family member to read when they came on duty in the role of Sentinel by Archer's side, and I had hoped they would add to it anything of note. Back to where we were in the story, if you're following along, you know Billy and Dewey had arrived at Atlantic Care, home from their marathon round trip, picking up Dutch from camp in Maine, and driving back from Boston another eight hours to New Jersey to bring him to the hospital to see Archer. Dutch still wearing his camp shirt and all this before we had to get him back to Maryland to begin a new school year, seventh grade. And you know how Dutch collapsed in my arms, burying his head in my neck and just sobbing when he laid eyes on his paralyzed brother for the first time, a memory I shall never forget my darling young son. I wonder if he will ever be the same or what his body might still carry from that shock. I know there is work ahead for all of us. You know, I sometimes wonder if we will all ever be the same. Perhaps not. Think about your own life, major events that changed your life, for better and for worse. But I guess we are never the same. I hope we grow wiser and more tender and more loving, despite our losses. Or perhaps because of our losses, as we know what it means to have lived fully. Or, perhaps to have loved deeply or been loved deeply. And if we're really lucky, both. Back in the intensive care unit at Atlanticare, we had just had what I thought were breakthroughs from the meetings with the three chief specialty doctors all together in collaboration, as well as the one-to-one discerning meeting I had had with Dr. Elnahal that you heard about in the audio recording from episode 11. They were breakthroughs, as it felt like we were beginning for the first time to have some coordinated decision-making for Archer between the specialties. With the children and Billy arriving back, I had asked for another family meeting, this time with the whole family but there were new setbacks. Where is God in our lives when so much is going wrong? I was in regular dialogue. Welcome to episode 12, Mounting Pressure. Settle in, settle your spirit, anticipate something meaningful for yourself or for someone you love whom you can talk to about any insight that arises for you for your own life. Here we go, back to August, 2015, Atlantic Care Hospital, Trauma ICU. Life can change in the blink of an eye, August 22nd to 24th, days 19 to 21. We are in a very low time right now, after all the good of the last two days. Two more crashes. Please pray for Archer's everything, heart, lungs. That's what I sent while I was waiting on Billy to arrive with the boys. It was a plea to my friends still texting me. I cherished them. I had a deep desire to stay connected. I needed to stay connected. That they were still texting me, despite my family's diligent efforts to curb the amount of response texting and to transition my updates to a website and Facebook, which was so noble and thoughtful. They were still texting and I was grateful. I was also grateful for Paula's postings and for everyone's concern that I was robbing myself of good sleep, but I sort of didn't care. Staying connected was a stronger life current for me than sleep, but things were happening very quickly again. There was too much going on, and too much was changing to create an entry to post. Texting seemed more expedient, so texting was easier. Archer had crashed again. Please, Lord, please end this crazy up and down. It was the lung seal that had bottomed him out this time, a measure that had to be taken, the pulmonologist said, to get him out of ICU. But it was the second attempt, and it didn't work either. Archer's body had been through so much. I guess it just wasn't ready. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Edward Hamity, head of pulmonary and chief of critical care at Atlanticare at the time we were there. In 2015, you'll hear more in later episodes, but here is what he had to say about his memories of Archer, even six years later.
2: And he had a rough course, no question about it. I even mean, it was it was rough from day one, and he had multiple ups and downs. Really had the bad domino effect. You know, it just it just kept. One domino kept falling onto the other, and it was taking each one of those, doing our maximal therapy, and hoping that we could get to the part where it turned around. Which fortunately we did.
1: Yeah, it was a bad domino effect.
2: Um, (laughs) I can't even. I I know that doesn't do it justice. I mean, I'm. When I think back, when I look back at his record, it it was truly what we call a cascade effect. He just cascaded one thing after another, after another, predictable, known complications, but to get as many and as severely as he got them really was unfair, I think. I think we all felt like this kid's not catching a break, not one break. He couldn't have those chest tubes in his sides
1: forever. And the infection potential was growing more and more precarious by the day, they said. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry for trifling you with such a selfish request. I know you know better than I do. But please make this stop for Archer and for all of us. Archer has got to get better, Lord. Lord. Please help me navigate this. Please help Archer endure. And please help the doctors see viable options. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. Give me the strength to trust in you and divine goodness. Whatever happens. Maybe you have had such prayers yourself. Ones for what you want. And ones that are harder, but more authentic to trust in God. But it was hard. The pressure was mounting. I could feel this heaviness in my spine and in my hands as if they were lead We had been in the intensive care unit for almost three weeks now. I closed my eyes. Please, Lord, help us see the possibilities. The only thoughts that came to me were to ask for another family meeting in a more formal way. It was the weekend except for new admittees with late-night surgeries. It was usually quiet on the weekends in the ICU, where we didn't see many doctors. I tore out a piece of paper from my medical notebook and scrawled, This is Louise phipp Archer Semps mother, in room 3111. I would like an emergency meeting this weekend with Archer's main doctors, cardiac, pulmonary, and trauma together. I would like my family to understand the situation and for us to decide next steps to get our son out of ICU I was thinking of family meetings as any group of doctors with me and any other family member, but this time, I wanted a full family meeting, and I needed it then over the weekend while everyone was there before they had to get back to their lives. I addressed it to the hospital administrator, walked out of Archer's room, down the hallway, and gave it to one of the nurses in the donut hole. I asked if she could get it to the appropriate person for emergency meetings with families. She asked me, in a startled but sweet voice, if everything was all right. And I, a bit tartly, I admit, said, No, everything is not all right, and we need a meeting. And I am trusting that you will get my note into the right hands. Feel free to read it. We need a meeting this weekend. As I turned to head back to Archer's room, I regretted the tone I had used and made a note to tell her next time I saw her that I was sorry about that. It probably got the job done, but I don't think it was necessary. A woman whom I did not recognize, dressed in civilian clothes, but with the hospital credentials dangling around her neck on the lanyard, entered Archer's room a few hours later. She told me a meeting was scheduled for that night, after the emergency surgeries. I felt hopeful. Thank you, I said to her. She turned on her heels and seemed purely administrative and unattached. Just a messenger, but an important message. Later that night of this crazy day, I saw through the glass door and curtain shear two pulmonologists, judging by the color of their scrubs. It was a funny thing because the curtain we would draw across the room was fairly opaque, but it did not touch the floor. No, it was designed with about 12 inches or more of a sheer fabric that hung down so you could see who was in the hall. I could see the two young doctors in front of our room, and they were talking. So I went to open the sliding glass door. As I did so, the Xeroxed copy of my creative miracle prayer I had scotch-taped up on the glass door fell gently to the floor. I leaned down to pick it up and repost it next to my Thank you for taking care of Archer, please whisper sign, which I had written in the prettiest black scroll lettering I could do. And I said, Hi, I'm Archer's mom. You're on the pulmonology team, right? Will one of you or someone from pulmonology be attending our family meeting later tonight? They indicated uncertainty and did not seem to know about the meeting or what I was even talking about. So I said, it's a meeting with Archer's main doctors and with us where we collaborate and talk and understand and decide together on options to help Archer and move him along and get him out of ICU. I'll never forget as one of the young physicians glanced at the other and then turned his attention toward me and lowered his head and shook it slowly back and forth saying, It is a very difficult situation. It seemed that for every step forward, there were two steps back. Didn't we just have a clear path for pacemaker surgery? But I guess things had changed when Archer's breathing had dropped along with his heartbeat, Were we again on that razor-thin edge between life and death. But each time, Archer would come around and begin breathing. And sometimes they pounded on him. And other times they used huge suction cups on him. Still other times they used the machine that gave him the electric bolts. It was all barbaric enough. But his heart would beat again. But how long? Could he endure those tactics? Maybe it was life or death. But maybe it was just the way it was just until he got stronger. I felt helpless, not knowing which. God, please settle me. As I sat waiting for the evening to pass with all the other logistics and the kids coming and going, figuring out dinner, saying hello to Dutch, and the surreal aspects of Archer, who was so swollen, lying so still amidst so much activity. I picked up my phone to check the texts. Such good people checking in on us. I took my breath away. I was feeling the weight of how long it seemed or really was that we had been living in an ICU. And there were the texts, as if God were speaking to me through my friends. There were a number of friends who were trying to put me in contact with others they knew, who knew of someone else who had survived a quadriplegic injury. I knew I could not or did not have the bandwidth then to reach out to the names they were sending. But it meant a lot to know that there were others who survived. These friends texted me and reminded me to stay hopeful. And they would tell me about other quadriplegics they had met or heard of or read about, like this quadriplegic man who is now working in finance in New York City, or this other young man, football player who started a foundation. As I read these texts, all seeming to come at this time. I did feel hopeful and was inspired by these stories. But you know what else I thought to myself? Archer Sempt is going to walk someday. He is not going to spend his life as a quadriplegic. That might surprise you that I had those thoughts. Maybe you would not have or maybe you would have, too. You may think I was out of touch with reality. Maybe. Or you might think I was even arrogant, sort of a not-us kind of thinking. Maybe that, too. Or you might think it's even fairy tale like thinking. Yes, perhaps. But that thinking kept me grounded in the now. The real now of the situation, one foot in front of the other. And I did look at Archer and see him walking. I needed to. To my friend, Neil Weissman in Baltimore, and to the others who texted me about someone they knew, I texted back, thank you. I would welcome a conversation with your friend in time. I have vowed to never lose hope. Sending love. I realized though, in some far off kind of way, that my friends were on this journey with us, experiencing it the same as I was, but also experiencing it differently we were all on the ride together. So I had friends who were practical and had good ideas. And I also had friends who were really grieving, especially some of the moms who had known Archer his whole life. I was struck by those texts. And as they came in, so many of them said, I can't imagine. or I'll never begin to understand. Those were such words of humility. They comforted me. And I also felt their deep sadness. Even though that is an emotion I had not yet begun to fully process. And I'm still working on it. As part of the look back, I had an opportunity to interview one of these wonderful moms, Mary Jo Detterman, whom you have met before. I asked her about this in this excerpt as we reflect on the mounting pressure and uncertainty of the time. You know, Mary Jo, I'm curious when you say you know how it is when you have that feeling where you know, nobody understands what I'm going through. Have you had that experience before? Because I think that's right.
3: Well, I think anybody that has lost, you know, if you've experienced loss in your life, loss of a loved one, of course. I think it's a very
1: common feeling and I've, I did you know, I had felt that before, when I lost people in my family. Um, it's the same feeling. You know, you were, we were grieving for Archer that day.
3: Um, even though he he was just so so, so severely injured, you know, we knew he
1: was alive, but we were grieving for him. I guess I was too for that part of Archer, we might not get back. But my imagination told me we would get all of him back. But then I would fall apart just about every time I got in the car. But other than those car rides nightly or early morning or every couple of so days when I stayed at the ICU, I'm not sure. I had time to grieve. Does anyone really have any time to grieve when they are in an ICU? Grieving is not something you do in an ICU. I don't think I knew I needed to grieve all that loss. But I was subtly aware that when I received those texts of others' sadness, that grief was just too tender of an emotion for me to fully experience then. When we had to think and be strategic and get Archer out of there. I guess it was just postponed grief with little leakages here and there. And there were the texts I received that also really lifted me up from people who seemed to know exactly where I was and all the bases we needed to cover in that moment. Rita Walters texted and said, My dearest, beloved friend, I have been praying nonstop since I heard the news. I also have solicited the prayer network of friends, family, and strangers. I have friends in New Jersey. New York, and Atlanta, all praying for Archer and for his caregivers. I have not slept in a week, and I am with you and Bill as we all stand in the gap until Archer walks again. I purchased the book and received it as you requested, and I will be making a donation now that the donate button is available. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you, Archer, and family in a small way. I declare that he shall walk again. And what a day that will be. Praise God from whom all our blessings flow. Yours in eternal love, Rita. Oh, yes, my dear, dear Vita. Yes, he will walk again. I'll look at the clock. I figured the boys would be finishing supper soon, wherever they had gone, and that they would text me. As I sat quietly, watching Archer and his monitors, I was okay with the one-person rule. Archer was very weak again and had just slipped back into a state that was a little unsettling to see, really not very present at all, even as he slept. It frightened me a bit, my lion-hearted boy. I remember wondering what it is like for those who are so badly injured or in such delicate medical condition. Maybe some of you could speak to this if you've ever been in such a state. I am very interested. It seemed to me that the narcotics knock you out and you don't really rest. You're sort of someplace else. Indeed, as for the body, it seems you actually get weaker in a hospital. Maybe not, but it seemed that way. The longer we were there, the worse off. Oh, my poor darling. Please hang in there, Archer. You are so amazing to endure this. I went back to reading my texts. Kathy Boyne, my friend who works in a hospital and has a close-up view, and whom I have worked with professionally, texted me. Hi, I know you love frameworks. Just spent the night with my mom in hospital post-knee surgery. In 18 hours, prevented one wrong medication and one wrong procedure. So that tells you how unsafe it can be. So stay vigilant. You are an amazing mom. I knew I was not crazy. I saw it too up close and very personal. Yes, we all have to stay vigilant when our loved ones are in an ICU. I was beginning to also come to see that we have to because we can't rely on the medical staff to do it all when it's so complicated or when there are so many needs to attend to. It's a complicated medical system and we have to help each other is the way I see it. Please, Lord, let the medical team tonight hear us that we need Archer to thrive and get to the next level. We'll do our part. Please help them do theirs. Oh my kidding, Lord, Jesus. Please help me do my part. I looked at the next text. And there it was. A telephone number. I did not recognize. But it was actually a picture of a page from a book. I supposed a spiritual book. I read it closely i am a god who heals i heal broken bodies broken minds broken hearts broken lives and broken relationships my very presence has immense healing powers you cannot live close to me without experiencing some degree of healing However, it is also true that you have not because you ask not. You receive the healing that flows naturally from my presence, whether you seek it or not. But there is more, much more available to those who ask. There it was. Yes, God is always answering my prayers and yours too. I texted the sender, Thank you so very much. And the sender responded Dear Simps, this is my daily devotional from Jesus Calling and is so appropriate for this day for Archer. I am a prayer warrior. And we pray several times a day for complete and total healing for your precious son. Please keep up the updates as we tailor our very specific prayers on those. Thinking of you, Wheezy Andrews, mom of Anna in Dutchess class. Another mom I didn't really even know. But she had gotten my number, and I was so glad she had. Something else was crystallizing for me, too. The power of specific prayer intentions. And I would keep posting. My eyes fixated on how swollen Archer's entire lower body was. What they called edema. And I was wondering why does that happen? I guess lack of blood flow. These troubled thoughts were lulled into passing thoughts. As I was aware again of the soft sounds of nature that were very peaceful, had an effect on me too. They were really beautiful, birds and flute music and the light smell of just fresh air from the orchids, I think. It was restful. Another 20 minutes had passed on the big clock over Archer's bed. I went back to my texts. There was one from Gay Jervie, the sister, of one of Billy's college Zeta Psi fraternity brothers who lives in Washington, D.C. He and I, too, had been good friends. I had met his sister and I marveled at how kind it was for her to reach out, but I was taken by what she said. Louise, Pete and I and all the Jervies have been praying nonstop and we focus special positive energy to all of you at surgery time. As a journalist covering hospitals, I have spent many days and nights in ICUs and know that they really are their own ecosystems. So I am in awe of this special haven you have created for Archer and know it will speed and nurture his healing in every way. Sending love and support to all of you, Gay and Pete Jervy. Yes, Kay, I hope we are on the right track. Help us, Lord, with the path of healing. Just as I had thought that, I received this message from my friend Roxy Bahar Hewardson in North Carolina. Louise and Billy. I am sending a world of white light to surround Archer right now as he readies for surgery. Just wanted you to know. No answer expected. Love is the greatest power in the universe. Roxy. Yes, Roxy. Lord, please help me to love. I glance at the clock. It was getting late. I looked back at my phone. Ah, oh, my dear friend Anne Hammond from Houston. She sent a photo of a quote. I cherish the photos of beautiful sayings and verses kind people were sending to me. I read them all. This is hers. Always remember the future comes one day at a time. Dean Acheson, I love you, Louise. I love you too, Chiquita. There was movement in the hallway. I poked my head out of the room and it was Billy and Paula and Pete and Dewey and Dutch and Dr. Cholucci. He said he would be back in about 10 minutes with the other doctors, Dr. Elnahall, and Dr. Hamity, and would meet us in the family waiting room. As part of the look back over five years later, I had the recent opportunity to interview Dr. Hani Elnahal, the medical director of the Atlantic Care Physicians Group, whom you've already met in the audio recording in episode 11. Dr. Elnahal is a cardiologist, the head cardiologist, and was on the schedule to do Archer's pacemaker surgery Monday. We just had to get through the weekend. But it seemed something was wrong. When I interviewed Dr. Elnahal, it had been six years since he was involved with Archer's Care and our family. And I wanted to talk about that family meeting, if he remembered. I reminded him it had been three weeks that we were in the ICU when we had the family meeting.
3: I... Uh had a chance to uh, look at his chart this morning. Mm. And um, um, I, I remembered a lot of the events, uh, and I, but I remembered more after I read into the chart. Um, I did not recall the length of stay. And of course, when I looked at it, I, it's amazing. I mean, you guys were there for an extended period. Uh, it was a trying time. For you, I'm sure. It really was.
1: Yeah. And um, I'm appreciative that that is acknowledged. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea what it was like in an ICU, it's never been in mm-hmm. one. My children, um, have five children, they've all been healthy. And there we were. Even Dr. Elnahal saw the impact of all this on our family. It was a trying time, but I was most moved by what Dr. Elna Hall shared about changes now put in place at Atlantic Care and changes put in place by Dr. Hamity. Practice changed at Atlantic Care because of the way we went about family meetings included. Archer Mm -hmm. Um, went from our meeting or our family meeting, but our interaction, was anything changed for you?
3: Well, I mean, we actually had things uh, more structured now. So from uh, developing a team of patient advocates that actually they are employed by the hospital, but are advocates of the patient and the patient family. We have that in our system now. Oh, wonderful um and and in icu or in all, units? No, in all units it's 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 almost like the, the department of ethics uh, uh can go anywhere in the hospital so they are involved in care on demand by families whether they're in intensive care or just even in the emergency room wonderful and what are they called they're patient advocates patient advocates yes. and then we have uh, um um, a more easy process to uh, uh, engage caregivers with the families, especially in intensive care. Our, uh, uh, you probably met Dr. Hamity. He was I, one of the pulmonologists, I think, that took care of. Uh, yes, Dr. Archer. Hamity. Yeah, so he's in charge now of the uh, critical care units in the city and has done a wonderful job in terms of. Uh, um, I don't know if that was a trigger for him, but since then, he has been uh, um, routinely advocating for patient sessions. And I'll tell you, unfortunately, a lot of this stopped with COVID. Yeah. Well, it, just,
1: it must be resumed. Yeah. I, I'm so pleased that you said his name. That's it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised because he and I had many mm-hmm. conversations, and it was completely around advocacy. I remember, I remember saying actually to him, if I, can't ab- if I don't advocate for Archer, who will? Mm-hmm. As, as my prerogative as a mother. My conversation with Dr. Elna Hall reminded me of the progress and changes to the medical system that happen as a result of collaboration and advocacy. And you will hear from Dr. Edward Hamity the head of pulmonary, in another episode. Before we assembled in the family waiting room, I had asked if we could assemble with Archer, part of the conversation too. I knew he was too weak to move again with all the tubes, but I didn't know what he could take in and not take in. These were big decisions for his life but the hospital reminded us about the no more than one person at a time with Archer rule. I closed the sliding glass door to room 3111 as I left Archer in the soft sounds of the trickling water on a nature CD with one of Pete's friends staying with him, the gurgling sounds of his own chest tubes and the muffled sounds of all the ICU beeps buzzers and blasts. I stepped out again into the loud hallway. I walked across the unit to the family waiting room. Can you want to know something crazy? I felt like I was sort of leaving the meditation room out into the noisy world. And yet I sort of missed the close proximity and convenience of the family waiting room right around the corner from our old room as we had treated it almost as an ancillary room where I could meet with visitors and the children could stay as we relieved each other on shifts. As I walked, I told myself, stay focused, Louise. We are on the home stretch here. Please get us out of here, Lord. We just have to get over this hump. I also asked my dear mother, Mary, to guide me and give me the information we needed and to put her loving arms around all my children, Archer and my children in that waiting room. As I turned the handle on the door, I wondered if Baltimore was the best place for Archer to go. Billy wanted us home, I did too, but I didn't know if home was the right place. I felt that pressure. Stay focused, Louise, as our family assembled all seven of us, well, six of us, minus Archer. My focus was on the tactical steps for getting Archer out and on to rehabilitation. I did not expect what happened. It was as if we had been hit by a two-by-four. As I looked for a place to sit in the circle the kids had tried to put together, Dutch was sprawled out on a chair like a raggedy Andy doll. He had his feet all haphazardly spread out in front of him as his long, lanky, 13-year-old body was splayed out over the arms and seat of the chair as if his body had no support. Pete was so somber, again pacing back and forth in a quiet but anxious way. I could tell he was thinking. He seemed to have grown into a man the last few weeks. He seemed much older than 22. Pete was always so free and jolly. To see him so serious was in some ways disquieting. And Billy, he sat there almost comatose. He and Dewey and Dutch had arrived from their long drive from picking Dutch up from camp. and They had only been in the hospital a few hours with a quick meal somewhere out in the busy, honky-tonk Atlantic City. I knew Dewey had driven the whole way. And it flashed in my mind. How long has Billy been like this? It was as if Billy, like Dutch, was there, but really someplace else. I was worried. Paula was attentive, God lover, as she sat upright with her hands in her lap, leaning forward. But she, too, kept repeating the same question to the different doctors whenever there was a lull. Will Archer get better? It was Dewey this time who led. You know, as I'm telling you about this meeting, I realize it was like our family was one system, a complex organism. And when one part had to rest or wasn't available, the other parts would step up like nature's clockwork. Dewey, our middle who was 19 years old, well, I guess it was his turn. Even though he had just been the driver on that back-to-back trip all the way to Maine and then back again to Cape May, he stepped forward seamlessly like he knew it was his turn. He joined me in my questioning as together we discerned with the medical team As we all sat in a ragtag circle of sorts of family waiting room chairs that had been pushed together to create, we tried to create a dialogue circle. The medical team told us they were running out of options for Archer to have enough capacity, they called it, to be transported. And they were pressing me for where he would be transported. I thought I had just had a bucket of cold water thrown on my head. What? Dr. Hamity said they were running out of options. I didn't understand. We are having pacemaker surgery. I also felt this surge of anger. They didn't know what they were doing. Smart people, people, Do not run out of viable options. I tried to calm myself down. We just needed to see the possibilities. I did feel they wanted him out of there as much as we did. But my suspicion radar was set off when they kept asking me where he would be transported. If he's too delicate to transport, you're expecting us to stay Oh, just take him down the street just to relieve you of responsibility? I felt the fire burning. Are we stuck here forever? None of this would have happened but for that heinous blood pressure medication error. Ooh, I was hot. I felt this stinging reminder that Archer had become a liability for them. And when Billy spoke, he only asked, When can we leave and take Archer home? It was a mess, or at least it was a mess in my gut. All I could say is, can someone please explain what you mean by your out of options for capacity to transport him? It was the pulmonologist who then said, Archer may not have enough capacity to make it through the next surgery. It was sort of a showstopper. What do you mean not enough capacity to make it through surgery? I didn't understand the implication. The person who leaned in the most to listen was Dr. Al the cardiac surgeon. I felt the pressure in the room and the growing sense that the medical team was all coming to the realization of what the other could or could not do and were at a loss as to what to do next. But I also felt for the first time that they felt emotional about it all. They were truly at a loss. I felt that in that room. And I felt that fire in my chest was not burning quite so hot. And the feeling in my hands was changing. It was actually sort of loosening because at least we were in this together. The pulmonologist continued and said to the cardiologist, that Archer could not have the pacemaker surgery in the current state he was in. I'll never forget the silence. Dr. Tolucci pronounced, we are stuck between a rock and a hard place. We ended the meeting but said we would reconvene the next day and see how Archer did throughout the night. My mind was going crazy whether I should accept that Archer might not make it. But when I paused and was still, like when I slowed my walk across the unit back into Archer's room, and when I sat quietly in our sanctuary by his side, My heart told me, it was just not Archer's time to die this way in the hospital. We are going to figure this out. My notes in my journal say, I sat bedside to Archer and said, Arch, we just had a family meeting. You're going to be okay, but we need you to stay strong and to focus on breathing. I will ask many people to pray for your lungs, darling. They will get better. Stay strong. We need to have a good night, and I know we will. I will be right here for anything you need. I love you. I believe you will be okay in the next couple days. Hang in there. You are lion-hearted he didn't move. I sent this text to many. Please pray hard that Archer's lungs can expand with air and sustain him. The night passed with some paperwork I had to sign and more tests and monitoring. Archer's body relied again on the temporary pacemaker, but I understood now when he coded that it was his new normal for one more night i was grateful for dopamine or whatever it was they gave him but i was also growing weary of the narcotics and drugs as i continued to check the labels on every drip bag as if i knew or understood what each thing was they were putting into archer which i still did not completely but They matched the doctor's orders that I now asked and made them show me. As the dawn broke, we made it. But everything was happening very fast again, almost in a frenzy. And instead of being really nice, the staff was curt. And I knew it was bad on that account. I noticed now that they got sort of clipped when they had to concentrate on something that was not in the usual course or was out of their scope of know-how. I knew that now. But it was nonetheless confusing to me because none of the medical staff was actually saying or letting on how bad it really was. They went about their work on Archer, but I could have sliced the fear in the room with a knife. I think the times when medical staff might not let families know how bad a situation is, has to do with being out of their own league of knowledge, too. Maybe you have experienced that, too. I hope not. But in our case, they were. And so were we. Archer was complicated. And we were in a damned if we do and damned if we don't predicament needing a surgery to increase his heart capacity when he didn't have enough lung capacity for a heart surgery. It was like attempting to unscramble a Rubik's Cube with no strategy. Archer, you're so good at Rubik's Cubes. Help me to help you. I knew there had to be a strategy. There is always a way. There is. I believe this with all my heart. There is always a way. God, show us the way. Maybe you have been in such a situation before. But you know what? As I look back, being naive but curious served me well enough. Because had there been really bad news, like death, I would not have been prepared for it at all. Maybe I should have been. I called Dr. Cholucci, and he said, we're doing our best. We're doing our best, but we're running out of options. But he didn't say, Louise, We have done all we can. There is nothing more we can do. He didn't. So I remained optimistic. Okay, I know it was bad, but I took it that there were still options. Help me stay grounded, Lord. It was day 20, as I counted. We were moving into day 21. We have to get Archer over the hurdle and out of here. And you know what else? There was a lady who came into our room with a clipboard. I'd never seen her before. And she was definitely not part of the medical staff based on how she was dressed. Without any introduction, not even her name, she said she was handling our insurance and needed to know what place we had chosen for Archer to go to rehab. Oh my God. I remember just staring at her dangling lavalier name pendant, twisted, hanging from her neck, with her name badge, though, decorated with all kinds of shiny, cute pins and trinkets, and thinking, what planet are you on? But maybe it was what planet was I on? And I said dryly, We do not know. And she said the hospital needed to know immediately. And I was flooded again with a mix of anger, but also a little shift, like maybe the hospital envisioned we would be leaving. And I said to her, we're trying to make decisions on surgery now. To which she replied, I don't know anything about that. I just handle the insurance billing. And I felt that surge of anger again slice any feeling I had had of uplift. I asked if she had a list of places in Baltimore for rehab. And she said, no, ma'am, that's up to the families and their insurance. I just do the billing for the transfer. I got it. But she irritated me. Man, she had no idea of what was going on. But you know what? She also shook me up with a dose of reality. If we did get Archer out of here, say tomorrow, after his pacemaker surgery, we really had to know where we were going. I can't believe I had not realized that before. One foot in front of the other it's only part of the strategy well to let you know the rest of the day here is the message i sent to the prayer warriors at 9 30 p.m sunday night family and friends update archer is very weak now and feverish again having been iced again He had surgery today for his lungs, another add-on surgery, and he will have another surgery tomorrow for a permanent pacemaker for his heart. It's an add-on surgery too. So it might be in the AM or the PM. Please pray that angels will guide the cardiac surgeon's hands. Dear God, It is through you that Archer's body, formed in your image, will find strength to come through the surgery without breathing complications. It is through your love for us that we continue to pour love out to Archer and to each other. We are all strengthened. You did not give us a life that was not good and troubles that we cannot manage. If we place Our trust in you. Archer Strong, please say a prayer for his lung capacity. And I'll just let you know that after Saturday night being another difficult night, they whisked Archer in for emergency lung surgery. The surgery was long as the surgeons waited for Archer's body to calibrate between each step of the lung surgery as they tried to implant support to expand his lungs long enough for the lung to repair itself and wean off of one of the chest tubes. It was like his body was healthy and had the ability to repair itself if only he could get the electrical support to make it work or some type of workaround. Monday rolled around quickly. They wheeled Archer rapidly into the OR to remove the temporary pacemaker and implant the permanent box with the round battery. Here was another family and friends update. Monday, August 24th, 11 a.m. Archer was wheeled to the OR for pacemaker surgery this morning, about 9.50 a.m. Please say specific prayers that Archer's ability to absorb oxygen during surgery remains high, and that angels dance on the cardiac surgeon's hands. Amen. surgeon just came in. All went well. They found a good vein with the first stick. Hallelujah. We will not need to be on pins and needles in the day or nighttime now about his heartbeat. He is lion-hearted. Just needed a little help. Amen. It was August 24th. Paula's 25th birthday, and I had nothing for her. She was by my side with Archer. We were reading sous chef aloud and could hear the booming flaps of another chopper landing. We said a Hail Mary together for that person and family, that they will be okay. It's not easy in the trauma intensive care unit. I was grateful for family meetings, willing doctors, and collaboration. Paula had covered Archer up with one of the prayer shawls he had received, crocheted by hand. And I found this note in the journal. Prayer shawl. As they sit in a circle crocheting each stitch made in silence with an intention for healing. Imagine that an archer is a beneficiary, small miracle, (laughs) and it's archer's favorite color, yellow. We made it through today. Thank you, Lord, archer strong. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious, sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Thank you for tuning in to the blink of an eye story. You may continue listening this Saturday to the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story at Trauma Healing Learning, Episode 12, Mounting Pressure. Thank you for listening and telling your friends. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing.
0: share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneye.podcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com.